scripture reading for this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. If you'd like to use the Blue Pew Bible that's in front of you, you can find the passage on page 958, 958, 1 Corinthians 17 to 34. And as you're turning there, I just want to remind everybody that scripture is truly a gift to us. It is God's love letter to his bride, the church, which is us, his people, allows us to draw near to him with confidence and full assurance of faith. Would you please rise? This reading of God's holy and inerrant word, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17 to the end. But in the following instructions... I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I see from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning that we're able to sit under the preaching of your word. May you incline our heart to the scriptures. Open our eyes to be able to see its wonderful truths, but also help us to be able to apply these truths in our lives 
and that we would find satisfaction ultimately in obedience to you. Lead us now as we study your word by your spirit, and may you bless this time. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. So my first car was a 1994 two-door Acura Integra. And I like to add it was white as well. Now, I remember taking it on a cross-country trip from California to Dallas for a summer internship at Lockheed Martin. I traveled 2,500 miles in that small car. And that means that shortly after arriving in Dallas, the car would need an oil change. So I went to the auto parts store, I picked up the parts, an oil filter, the appropriate oil. I took it over to my friend's house, jacked it up, drained the oil, changed the filter, topped off the oil, done. Now a few weeks later, my low oil light goes off on my dashboard. Thankfully, I was almost home, so after I got home, I checked underneath the car, it was slick oil. Oh no. I must have botched something up, so I took it to the mechanic. They discovered that I had installed the wrong oil filter. I installed an oil filter for an EX model Acura Integra rather than my LX model. The oil filter failed to seal properly. Now this incorrect oil filter caused disharmony within my car. It failed to work with the rest of my Acura's engine to ensure proper lubrication to the oil. The lubricating oil leaked out. A lack of oil in the engine could potentially mean more potential damage to the car. And when an engine fails to have the right parts working together, it leads to disorder and potential disaster. Now, another word for disharmony is division. When there exists division within a machine, it'll eventually stop working. And for those of you who are computer programmers, you know that if there is a bug that causes disharmony in your code, it'll eventually crash. Disharmony not only affects machine, computer code, but it also affects organizations. Can you imagine what it'd be like if two pilots on an airplane wanted to travel in two opposite directions? Or what would happen if two chefs in the kitchen can't agree on the menu that they want to serve their guests? One wants to serve salmon, the other wants to serve steak, argument, disorder. What happens if a CEO wants to take a company in one direction, but the board wants to go the other direction? Disorder. And more specifically, the board probably will vote the CEO out, or the board eventually resigns because of the two different directions. Now, division can also affect the church. Some split on what to wear. I know of a church where people left because they were not allowed to wear jeans when they served on the worship team. Some people divide over the translation of the Bible that they should use. Some prefer NIV. Others prefer the ESV, the extra sanctified version. You know, or some people provide even the King James Version. Some people split over interpersonal conflict. I can't come to this church if this person continues to come and the church allows him or her to do so. 
And these divisions continue to exist because we choose to live according to our flesh. If our flesh remains, then divisions will continue to be a problem. It will continue to be an issue. Now, Jesus knew that the church would be susceptible to division. And to guard against division, he gives us a way to remember that the unity that we have in him. A meal. A family meal. Communion. The Lord's Supper. But how does the Lord's Supper help believers guard against division? How does partaking in a simple wafer and a cup of grape juice in our church, or if you're in a Presbyterian church, wine, how does these two things unite us? How does it promote harmony? How does this practice of the Lord's Supper help to bring people together? Now, to answer this question, we're going to turn again to the letter to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And if you're not there already, please turn there. Again, it is in the Blue Pew Bibles on page 958. And thank you, Melvin, for the scripture reading this morning. Again, the passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, previously in 1 Corinthians, last time, Paul addressed the topic of head coverings in a church's worship service. And if you miss Jason's excellent message on this passage, then I would encourage you, go on the hcchome.org website to find that sermon. Because now, Paul turns to a different element within the worship service. He turns his attention now to how the Lord's Supper is conducted within the Corinthian church. So we'll cover this morning's passage under four questions concerning the Lord's Supper. Okay. The first question is, what do divisions reveal? What does decisiveness, divisiveness, disclose about us? What does disharmony show, reveal? And second, what does the Lord's Supper remind us of? What memory should the supper invoke? What should it help us to recall? And third, what happens when we take the Lord's Supper improperly? What is the consequence of taking the Lord's Supper in a way that does not accord with God's instructions? And then lastly, what can we do to prepare for the Lord's Supper? What can we do to make ourselves ready to partake in communion? Okay, so first question, what do divisions reveal? Divisions reveal a misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper. That the existence of division within a church means that we do not fully comprehend the significance of the Lord's Supper. We don't grasp what the Lord's Supper is actually supposed to do. That divisions reveal a misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper. And we see this in the Corinthian church. That the divisive conduct of the Corinthians during these meals revealed a misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper. It reveals their disharmony, disunity, their partisan behavior. That their inability to get along shows that they don't really understand the point, the meaning, or the significance of the Lord's Supper. Now look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe in part. So what do the Corinthians have in terms of issue? The Corinthians thought that when they got together for church, they partook in the Lord's Supper. But Paul says, whatever you're gathering to eat, 
it's not the Lord's Supper. There may be bread, there may be wine, but it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. So what is going on here? What is causing these divisions? Now, the Corinthians came from a culture when they feasted together to celebrate religious rituals. They imported this practice of feasting into the practice of the Lord's Supper. Now, this festive meal might have occurred during the church service, but it's not clear when it occurred. Some believe that this meal happened before the Lord's Supper, before the bread and the cup. So you take the bread and the cup after the feast. But some people believe that this feast occurred between the bread and the cup, that you took the bread, then you had the feast, and then you partook in the cup. Now, it doesn't matter when the meal occurs. All we need to know is that they had an extra meal during their practice of the Lord's Supper. But then there are two problems. There are two groups, two factions within the Corinthian church. You had the wealthy and you had the poor. And the first problem is that the wealthy ate well while the poor ate simply. When the church came together, the wealthy brought a nice, sumptuous, succulent, private meal. And the poor brought a simple meal, if anything. So imagine the wealthy eating a ribeye steaks with potatoes, green beans, and the poor have simple rice porridge. It's a stark difference. Look at verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. And the image of hunger and drunkenness show the quantity of what each group ate. The poor didn't have enough to eat. They might even go hungry. The wealthy had so much wine to drink that they drank themselves drunk. So this first problem that plagued the Corinthian church is that the wealthy ate well and the poor ate simply. It's divisiveness. Now let's talk about the second problem. The second problem is that the wealthy and the poor, they ate separately. Now remember churches in the first century did not gather in buildings like ours. They gathered in homes, the homes of wealthy members of the church. And some of these homes could house 30 to 50 people. Now there were two places within a home where people could eat. There was the dining room, and then there's the courtyard. Now here's the rub. The wealthy believers ate their lavish meal in the dining room, the smaller area. The not-so-wealthy, the poor, ate their meals in the courtyard, the larger area. So look at verse 22. It says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And this division within the Corinthian church means that they didn't practice the Lord's Supper. They failed to understand its significance. Now, it's easy for us to think, those Corinthians. You know, this passage, though, challenges us to examine ourselves. It causes us to think, do divisions exist within our church? What do I do to contribute to disunity? Maybe you unconsciously maintain cliques. We work in this particular industry. We enjoy this type of music. We read this type of books. We partake in this type of food. We prefer to spend time with people like 
us. And we refuse to allow others to join our lunch, our hangouts, our gatherings, divisions. And are we truly partaking in the Lord's Supper? Now, divisions reveal a misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper, so this prompts us to wonder, so what is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? What is it supposed to remind us of? That brings us to our second point. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the unity that we have in Christ, that when we partake in the Supper, it directs our minds to what Christ did for us to bring us together. It causes us to reflect upon the oneness that we have in Jesus. It prompts us to think about how Christ brings us together, that the Lord's Supper reminds us of the unity that we have in Christ. So what did Jesus do then to bring us together? How did he unite us? And the Lord's Supper helps us to focus on this action, this activity. What did Christ do? And Paul reminds the Corinthian church the words of the institution of the Lord's Supper. First, he highlights how the meal reflects upon, brings us back to how Jesus would be handed over to the Roman authorities to be crucified. Look at verse 23. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he, he was betrayed took bread. Now note the time reference. It was the night when he was betrayed. The meal doesn't remind us of Jesus' birth. It doesn't remind us of Jesus feeding the 5,000. It reminds us to think about the night before he dies on the cross. Now note that there are two elements referenced here as well, the bread and the cup. Both elements remind us of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. Look at verse 24. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in verse 25, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now note the word, the phrase, new covenant in verse 25. What is the new covenant? When Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he co-ops or recasts the Passover meal. The Jews celebrate the Passover meal to commemorate the Lord delivering them from Egypt. And it also marks the establishment of a covenant between God and Israel. But in the Lord's Supper, Jesus uses the same Passover elements to remind his followers that there is a new covenant that commemorates deliverance from sin. And this marks a new covenant, a new relationship between God and all who believe in Christ's redeeming work on the cross. Now, let's think about this new covenant, and I want us to think about two things. First, Christ establishes a covenant between us and God. This means that when we believe in Christ, death on the cross, we experience a relationship with God. Sin that once prevented us from relating to God no longer bars or hinders the way. We have been forgiven. And the second thing I want us to talk, think about is how this new covenant establishes a new relationship between us and other believers, that we have more in common with other Christians because of our faith in Christ than others. And not only do we have this connection, this relationship with other believers, but we also have the resources to maintain the harmony. 
Now you wonder, what resources? Think about it. If God forgave us for our sins, then we in turn can forgive those who wrong us, especially other believers. And it gives us the ability to confront without a desire for revenge because we ultimately confront for their good. That in the gospel we find the truths that are able to empower us to connect, to reconcile, to restore relationship. And our actions then proclaim the efficacy of what Christ did, that what we do shows off what Christ did on the cross, that the way that we speak, the way that we interact, proclaims Christ's work on the cross because it achieved a new covenant with God. And it also established a new relationship between us and other believers. Look at verse 26. It says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, if Christ's death achieved these things, then why does divisiveness still exist? Why is there still disharmony? It's because we easily forget. We have spiritual amnesia. We don't always remember what Christ accomplished on the cross for us. So if we want to pursue unity in the church, then we need to remember, to recall, to recollect. And unity in the church requires a regular remembrance of Christ's redemptive work. Now the question is, does remembering work? Can a memory give us the ability to live differently? Now thinking about the Lord's Supper reminds me of another meal, another personal meal. So when my dad received chemotherapy during his battle with cancer, after the chemotherapy treatment, he would always want to eat at one place, in and out. Now, to be honest, before my dad's battle with cancer, I really didn't care much for in and out I thought I was like, blah, blah. You know, now, don't crucify me, Californians. I know. I'm a Californian, too, okay? But after my dad passed away, I enjoyed going to in and out Not necessarily because of the food, but it's because it reminds me of my dad. But more importantly, it reminds me of the brevity of life. That every time I eat there, it reminds me that life is brief. And I need to be encouraged to cherish my moments with my family. Because you never know how long we might have with them. And hopefully, I've been able to live that out ever since the passing of my dad. Now, if God can use a burger joint to remind me of this, then how much more can God use a simple meal of a wafer and a cup of grape juice to remind us of Christ's work on the cross so that we can live in a way that represents him? Now, if the Lord's Supper reminds us of the unity that we have in Christ, of the oneness we have in him, then what happens if we don't adopt this mindset when we observe the Lord's Supper? That brings us to the third question. What happens when we take the Lord's Supper improperly? Now, an improper participation in the Lord's Supper will result ultimately in God's discipline. That if we fail to adopt the right mindset, the right heart attitude, the right perspective, then when we partake in the Lord's Supper, we invite God's correction. And God's correction might be painful. 
but he will intervene to bring us back into the line. That an improper participation in the Lord's Supper will result in God's discipline. And we see this in the Corinthian church. That Paul warns the Corinthians that God's discipline awaits those who participate in the Lord's Supper improperly. Why? It's because when we partake in the Lord's Supper, we, it identifies us as a certain type of people. If we take the Lord's Supper improperly, then we are identified with a certain type of people. And if we take the Lord's Supper properly, we are identified as God's people. So then the question is, if we take the Lord's Supper improperly, who are we identified with? We are identified with those who rebel against God. Look at verse 27. It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now the phrase guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord, what does that mean? It means that when we take the Lord's Supper improperly, we identify ourselves with those who crucified Christ. That we resemble those who reject God's rule and kill the king. That's what happens when you fail to take the Lord's Supper properly. And what happens when we choose to identify with the rebels? Those who are far from the Lord. What happens when we identify with them? It incurs God's discipline. Look at verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. The phrase discerning the body refers to a believer's failure to recognize that the elements represent Christ's body and blood, broken and shed to redeem us. And this results in judgment. Well, what kind of judgment? Now, in the Corinthian church, people fell ill and died. Look at verse 30. It says, That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Now, you may be wondering, did people really drop dead in church? Now, I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility, because if you remember in the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira, they lie about the proceeds of selling the land that they owned, and it cost them their lives. It served as an act of discipline. Now, this may cause you to wonder, and it's kind of hard to receive correction when you're dead. I mean, who's the discipline for? Is it for the person who died? Now, this reminds me of a discussion we had with our college students. At least I had with our college students on Friday night. In another story within the Old Testament, God struck Uzzah dead for touching the Ark of the Covenant, and it was discipline. But who is the discipline for? Maybe the discipline isn't for the person who died, but the discipline is actually for the community. That the intent of the discipline is meant to teach and instruct God's people. Don't do that. Because if you do, there will be dire consequences. But why does God discipline us? He disciplines us so that we would not be like the world. That the purpose of God's discipline is to make us set apart, distinct, holy. Now look at verse 32. It says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So what does this mean? It means that we need to examine ourselves when we partake in the Lord's Supper. We need to introspect. Now look at verse 28. 
It says, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. But what does it mean to examine oneself? Does that mean we need to remind ourselves of how unworthy we are? Do we need to confess every single sin we've committed this last week to partake in the Lord's Supper? Because if we don't, I might drop dead. I mean, what about the sins that I did unconsciously, and I don't know how to confess them because I don't know what I did? And I would say, no, to examine oneself doesn't mean beating oneself up for how much you failed. Because to do so actually puts the focus on you. It's about what I did or what I failed to do. Because the focus of the Lord's Supper is supposed to be on what Christ did, what he did for us on the cross. And do you believe this? Because if you do, then it means that you work toward reconciling with those whom you have wronged. You talk again to those to whom you give the silent treatment. You forgive those who have committed a wrong against you. You rebuild relational bridges that you burn down. So think about, consider the gospel when you partake in the Lord's Supper. That's what it means to examine oneself. Do you understand what the elements mean? Now, someone might wonder, if I partake in the Lord's Supper improperly today, and we do, are taking it today, then will God take someone out in our service? Will I experience a heart attack on the way out of service? Will I have a stroke that instantaneously paralyzes me when I get up from the pew at the conclusion of this service? Now, I don't know. God could possibly discipline you in that way. But I think that God disciplines us through the natural consequences of our actions. That if you fail to realize the significance of the Lord's Supper by refusing to restore relationships, then you will experience the consequences. What are those consequences? You might experience loneliness because you continue to alienate people. And loneliness affects the mind and the heart. That your unwillingness to reconcile people with people makes it unpleasant to spend time with you. That people watch what they say around you because they fear unexpectedly upsetting you. And this means that you'll never have friends that tell you the truth. You will never have believers who will point out sin in your life so that you can grow in Christ-likeness. And these things will cause stress, anxiety, frustration, anger. And such mental illness will make you more susceptible to sickness. And one might even say they could potentially kill you. Now, why do these things happen? Because God wants you to change. He wants you to return to him. He wants you to confess, yes, Lord, I'm bitter. I'm angry. I feel upset at people. They say that they're Christian, but they act so unchristian. I have unchristian friends that are even better than they are. But I realize that the same things I accuse people of, I am guilty of too, Lord. And I need forgiveness. I need restoration. I need what is offered to me in Christ. Help me to understand the power of the gospel so that I can live in harmony with others, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what we need to do. God's discipline awaits those who partake in the Lord's Supper improperly. Now this sets us up for the last question. So what can we do to prepare for the Lord's Supper? 
that we prepare for the Lord's Supper by caring for one another. To get yourself ready to participate in the Lord's Supper, you show concern for other people. You find ways to assist other believers. You think about ways, how do I support them? How do I encourage them? That to prepare for the Lord's Supper means caring for other people. And this is Paul's encouragement to the Corinthians, that Paul encourages the Corinthians to care for one another so that they would not experience God's judgment at the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 33. It says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give directions when I come. Now, when you heard me read that verse, you're probably thinking to yourself, I did not hear anything about caring. And you are right. But look at the verse. This is where it's helpful to have a paper physical Bible because I checked last night on my Bible app. It did not have this particular element that is found in your paper Bible. Now, if you look at verse 33 and you look at the phrase, wait for, there is a footnote. And in my Bible, it's a number five. That means you look all the way down in your paper Bible and it says, it gives you an alternate reading. It says, or share with. This means that another way of interpreting that particular phrase is to share. And we all know sharing is caring, right? But the word also has a broad number of meanings as well. It could also mean receive, to receive one another. And that sounds like hospitality, which is another form of caring. Paul instructs the church to care for one another, to show hospitality, to share, that the wealthy should not reserve their fine foods for themselves. They should share with the poor. Eat together. Don't eat separately. So what does that mean for us? That we are to care for each other, care for one another in the church, to cultivate unity. But how? Let me just give you one example. So one of the benefits of attending church here is that there is lunch offered after Sunday school. Now some might argue the food is low quality. I'm going to go out and find better food because I can afford it. But some people can't afford better food. All they can afford per their meager budget is church lunch. And so think about this. Maybe one of the ways that we care for one another is to stay for church lunch. We all eat the same simple meal, rice, vegetable, meat. The same $4.50 box lunch. We don't bring our private ribeye steak left over with green beans and potato. But we also partake in that same meal. We invite people to join us. That if you see someone eating alone in the chapel, you invite them to your group. You might say, hi, I don't think we've ever met before. My name's Henry. What's your name? And you wait, and they will give you their name. Would you like to join us for lunch? You don't need to schedule a future time in your calendar. You don't need to invite them over to your house. You simply sit down at the table, share the same simple meal, receive them. Share with them. So let's review. Divisions reveal a misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper. So what do we need to understand about the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper reminds us of the unity that we have in Christ. And if we fail to take the Lord's Supper properly, 
an improper participation in the Lord's Supper will result in God's discipline. So how do we prepare? By caring. That we prepare for the Lord's Supper by caring for one another. Now let me close with this. This passage, as I was studying it, and as I conclude it, it reminds me of a Pixar film, Ratatouille. Now, for those of you who have not seen the film, it's about a rat. I know, it doesn't sound very appealing, but it's a rat named Remy who cooks gourmet food. And at the end of the film, Remy must cook for a food critic, Anton Ego. And Remy cooks for him a simple dish called ratatouille. And when Anton Ego partakes in this dish, it transports him to his childhood eating his mom's cooking. That this dish reminded him of something that comforted him, his mom's food. Now may the Lord do the same whenever we partake in the Lord's Supper. May it transport our minds to the sacrificial work of Christ so that we might pursue unity in the church by caring for each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to worship you this morning and to be reminded of the importance of the Lord's Supper and its significance, how it points us to Jesus, to Christ, to the gospel, and how it gives us the power, the strength, the ability to pursue unity in the church, even though the potential for divisions exist. We pray that your spirit will help us to do this. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.